Turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin our message tonight in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And as I mentioned on Sunday, it's my intention this evening to bring one final message in the series that we've been covering on Wednesday nights about dilemmas and doubtful things. And tonight I'd like to preach to you on the subject of which Bible? Which Bible should we, as English speakers, use? And particularly, why do we choose to use the King James Version in our church ministries? We get asked this question a lot, especially by people who are new to faith or who are perhaps coming from a different church background. Why is it that you still use the King James Bible? And tonight I'd like to do my very best to share with you in the next 45 minutes the compilation of thousands of pages of reading and many hours of study. Um, We have an entire course that we teach on this in our Bible Institute on the doctrine of the Bible, bibliology, and of course you could... could Considering all the technical sides of this argument, you could spend many, many hours, and scholars do debate these things back and forth uh, quite heatedly, as a matter of fact. But tonight, what I'd like to do is, first of all, give a brief overview of some of the technical side, and then I want to take a few minutes to talk with you about the scriptural side and why it's important that we approach this uh, from some scriptural principles, and that will help us much in this discussion. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, you're familiar with it. The, The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished, unto all good works. And we'll come back to that verse in a little while. But certainly the question of which English Bible should be used is a thorny issue. And it's one that we encounter frequently, especially as we are evangelizing and discipling new believers. Tonight you may be aware that there's over 100 translations of the Bible in the English language. And Unfortunately, the discussion usually devolves into, I like the ESV. I prefer the NIV. Well, I'm old school and I like the KJV. And really, this is not so much an issue of what one person likes and one person doesn't like. If that's all it was, then we would expect that perhaps some of the older folks would prefer the the KJV, because they grew up with it. Um, You know, someone like me who grew up my whole life hearing and reading from the King James Version, uh, you would expect someone like that to prefer that, and then maybe someone else to prefer a different Bible. And that's generally what the discussion centers around with most people. But I, I propose to you this evening that there's more to the issue than just which Bible do you prefer, or which one do you find the most readable or the most relatable? Because if we went with that as the measure, then who knows, we could be reading out of the Evonics Bible, or uh, I think there is one, actually. 
uh, or one of the other versions that we find to be the most palatable to us. All right, so just a little bit of an overview of some of the terms that get discussed. And first of all, it's really important for all of us to understand that the Bible was originally given in two primary languages, one being the Hebrew language and the other being the Greek language. That's not the same Greek that is spoken today. It was the common or Koine Greek of the biblical era at the time of Jesus and the apostles. There's a small number of passages also that were given in the Aramaic language, which was a Palestinian language and most likely was spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles during that time as a somewhat common language during that time period. Now, since none of us speak Hebrew and Greek fluently, it's difficult or impossible for us to read the Bible in the original languages. And maybe there are one or two people here who have taken enough schooling that you could sit down with a Greek New Testament and you could stumble your way through reading from the Greek New Testament and perhaps you could make heads or tails of it. Uh, I have taken some Greek and I can stumble through it a little bit, uh, somewhat. But the truth is we're English speakers And generally, when we're speaking about the Bible, we're speaking about the Bible that we read, the Bible that we preach from and teach from in the English language. So some terms that will help us. First of all, you'll hear about the originals. And the originals are just the original documents that contain the words that were given by God. So the words that were written down by Moses or the Apostle Paul, the originals. Just so we all understand, none of those exist. And it's a good thing they don't, because the way that people venerate objects and and relics, you know that those things would be worshipped if they did exist. So we don't have any of the originals anymore. You've probably also heard the term manuscript. And a manuscript is a copy. It's a copy of the originals, or more likely, it is a copy of a copy. We do have many manuscripts that you could look at. If you went to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., there's an entire building filled with manuscripts in Hebrew and also in Greek, as well as many copies of Bibles that were translated into other languages. So a manuscript is a copy. And many people say, well, how reliable is that? But we should stop for a moment to appreciate how careful these biblical scribes were in copying the scriptures and the incredible care that they took. Uh, you would, you would I, I don't have the time to take to describe that tonight, but you would appreciate that these manuscripts were very carefully written down. And so of these manuscripts, we do have several thousand manuscripts of the scriptures that you could see in a museum or examine pictures of today, and you would see that those manuscripts do exist in both Hebrew and Greek. All of these manuscripts are handwritten because obviously movable type was not invented until the middle 1400s by Johann Gutenberg. The word translation speaks about the communication of the words of the Bible from the original languages to a target language. In our case, the translation of the Bible from the Hebrew and Greek languages into the English language, which is what we read and understand. 
And we're thankful that the Bible has been translated into many languages. You can go back in history and see that the Bible was translated into multiple languages all the way back to nearly the time of the apostles. You can find evidence that the Bible was being translated so that people who spoke other languages could also be exposed to the words of God. The word inspiration, which we'll deal with in more detail in a moment, is simply the doctrine that God inspired the actual words of Scripture. It's very important, and we'll deal with this more more detail in just a moment, that God gave more than just ideas. It It was the words that God inspired. The words certainly communicate ideas, but the words themselves are of critical importance. The word preservation, which we'll also deal with in just a minute, speaks of the doctrine that God has preserved his word for future generations to read and understand exactly what God has communicated. The doctrine of preservation says that the word of God has not been lost, that it hasn't gone missing for, for centuries or for, for dozens of years. It's always been available since it was given so that people could hear and understand the Word of God. That's the doctrine of preservation. Then you probably have heard of textual criticism. And textual criticism is a scholarly approach to evaluating ancient biblical texts to determine their age, authenticity, and reliability. These are scholars who gather together to examine these manuscripts and decide where did this come from, Uh, Is there anything missing? And bear in mind that many times the manuscripts are a portion of Scripture. They're not typically an entire uh, book or or an entire Bible. That would be much more rare. Uh, There's a lot of reasons for that, one of which is just the materials that were written on tend to deteriorate over time. And so textual critics will study these Uh, scripture portions, these manuscripts, and try to come up with some determinations. Now, we also need to understand that many who are engaged in textual criticism are skeptics of the Bible, and they're skeptics of biblical doctrine. In other words, their, their worldview is rooted in skepticism, so they approach all of these Uh, studies looking for problems and really expecting there to be problems. This skeptical viewpoint is rooted in rationalism, which is uh, a a point of view that sprung up in the late 1800s in Europe and came across to the United States of America and had a huge impact on people saying there's a need for new versions of the Bible to be translated. By the way, up to that point, till the late 1800s, It was the King James Version was the authorized, accepted version. It was at that point then that people started translating the Bible again and talking about the need for a newer, updated Bible. But this was often rooted in this skeptical viewpoint that says rationalism, there is nothing miraculous. The Bible couldn't be true in these these areas where it talks about miracles. And many of these scholars who are behind these new translations of the Bible are themselves very skeptical of the core doctrines of Christianity. Then when we think about the Masoretic text, and maybe you've heard that term thrown around, the Masoretic text is the traditional Hebrew text upon which the, the King James Version is based. 
So when the King James Version was translated into English, it was translated from the Masoretic text. There are other Hebrew texts. There are variant readings, but the Masoretic text for a long time was the accepted, uh, was the accepted foundation. That was the one that everyone believed was the Bible. The Textus Receptus is the same thing except in Greek. So the Masoretic text is Hebrew. The Textus Receptus is the Greek New Testament upon which the King James Version is founded. That is where they translated primarily from. And of course, they used many other resource documents, including many Bibles that had already been translated into other languages. So the Masoretic text and the Textus Receptus The Textus Receptus is sometimes called the TR for short, and all these acronyms get thrown around by people who know better what they're talking about, and somebody who's not that uh, well-read in these things, what are you talking about? All of these terms and all of these these, uh, abbreviations, all right? But this is just the biblical text, the Hebrew and the Greek, upon which the New Testament and the Old Testament of the King James Version is based. Now, it's important to know that the majority of manuscripts which are available to examine today, and remember those manuscripts are just copies, but the majority of those manuscripts, 95% of them agree with the Textus Receptus in the Greek and with the Masoretic text in the Hebrew, 95% of them. And this would be the overwhelming agreement that we see of the biblical manuscripts that are available This is the primary foundation of the King James Version. There are 5% of manuscripts approximately that are in disagreement with that majority, and these are sometimes called the minority text. They disagree in many, many places with the Texas Receptus and the Masoretic text, and they disagree also with each other quite a bit. Two of the significant manuscripts in this family are called the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. Both of these were discovered in the 1800s. Both of these brought new authority to the biblical text issue, and both of these are a primary source for the new English versions. In fact, all of the available English versions, with the exception of the King James Version, and the New King James Version are translated from this 5% of manuscripts because scholars consider these manuscripts to be older and better. And you've probably seen that phrase in a note or a commentary somewhere in a Bible. The older and better manuscripts suggest this. For instance, in a passage in 1 John chapter 5, which is often attacked by textual critics. And, of course, that is a very plain explanation of the Trinity, the triunity of God. It is called into question. This is not found in the oldest and best manuscripts, the oldest and best being this family of manuscripts. All right, so all of these other English versions are coming from this other family of manuscripts. Are you still following me? I know we're getting technical right now. We're going to get biblical in just a moment, all right? But you need some background so that you understand. These manuscripts, as I've already mentioned, disagree repeatedly with the majority text and disagree between each other significantly. And yet, this is 
the family of manuscripts that is older, and it seems like maybe it is older, and better. And that's the part that we call into question is the better part. Now, I did mention that the New King James is based, or at least they claimed that it was based on the Textus Receptus in the New Testament and on the Masoretic text in the Old Testament. Uh, The reality is that those who have studied this issue have found many departures from the traditional text in their translation, and they have discovered and found that the New King James Version, in its efforts to be more readable, is an inferior translation to the King James Version. And, of course, many people uh, will try to go towards that direction because it's more readable, it's easier to understand, but one of the stated purposes of the New King James Version, which was funded by the Thomas Nelson Group, was to create a bridge for people who were stuck on the traditional King James Version to bring them over to the modern versions. And so just be very careful and be aware that there is an agenda. Now you say, come on, pastor, an agenda. Yes, an agenda. There has been an agenda or an attack on God's word since the very beginning. That agenda comes from the enemy who seeks to confuse truth. And he said in the Garden of Eden, yea, hath God said? He called into question the words of God. And we'll see in just a moment how important it is to understand that we have the very word of God. Now, this is a little bit of backdrop. There's a lot more things that we could talk about, but this is like the you know, the the 10,000-foot view of some of the issues that swirl around, the things that get thrown around. If you get in an argument or a discussion with someone who is coming from a critical text position, you're liable to hear things that you'll say, I'm not sure how to answer that, that I can't believe that you're saying that. Is that really true? And so... Uh, I'm just going to say, you know, I'm not encouraging you not to discuss this with people, but just understand that you can get in over your head pretty quickly if, say, you pick a Greek professor who takes a critical text view. He's probably going to make your head spin with some of his arguments. There are answers to all of those arguments. All of those arguments have been answered by conservative scholars who study the Greek and the Hebrew, who are respectable scholars, And they say the King James Version is the word of God in the English language. All right, so you can have confidence in that. But I don't have time to address all those things tonight in one message. What I do want to talk about, though, are five points of view which have shaped my view on this and have brought me to the conclusion that the King James Version is God's preserved word in the English language. First of all is the doctrine of inspiration. You see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Because it's given by inspiration of God, it is profitable in the four ways that are mentioned. And then in verse 17, it produces spiritual maturity and a complete furnishing to do the work of God. Now, what does the Bible mean when it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We find in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, 
that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, they didn't write the things that they came up with or that they thought would be the right thing to put down on paper or on papyrus or whatever it was that they wrote down on, uh, but they put down the words that God moved them to put down. So when we speak about inspiration, inspiration refers to the breath of God. Literally, this phrase here means that scripture is given by inspiration of God, that it is God-breathed. I had someone argue with me one time about that, and he kept telling me, that's not what it means. I said, that is what it means. That's exactly what it means. That's not what it means in the Greek. That's what it means in the Greek. That's what it means in the English, because surprise, surprise, the English is translated from the Greek. So if you want to understand what the Greek means, you could read the English and figure it out. Inspiration in the English means to breathe. It is speaking about the process of breathing, inspiration and expiration. And here we're told that the scriptures are the breath of God. Now, some people believe that this means God-inspired thoughts. And some people get confused by this word because they think about, I was sitting out by the lake and there was a beautiful sunset and I was inspired to write this song. That's not what this word is speaking about. This is speaking about God communicating directly to men exactly what he wanted recorded. Exactly what he wanted communicated for him. God inspired more than thoughts. But this is a key area to understand because many people have this idea, well, the only thing that really matters is that the the thought or the idea is communicated. So it doesn't really matter the words as long as the thoughts are there. And of course, the problem is that words communicate thoughts and ideas. And without the proper words, the wrong thought or idea will be communicated. God gave exact words, and he wanted those words to be communicated accurately. This is why Jesus said things like, not one jot or one tittle of God's word will pass away. And of course, we know that in the Hebrew alphabet, those are small markings, but small markings that indicate a difference in the words that change the meaning of the words. So when we speak about inspiration, we speak about uh, word inspiration or what is sometimes called plenary inspiration. It's the idea that God gave the actual words to holy men of God. God was very precise. Now, he did not violate those men's personalities, but instead he used them to accurately communicate the exact words that he wanted us to have within the context of who they were, their personality. That's why you can see a difference in the personality of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John in their writings. They, they write differently. They were unique men. So God didn't violate their personalities, but he communicated exactly what he wanted to communicate through them. Now, this doctrinal understanding then dictates that when translation takes place, remember, translation is taking the scripture from one language to another. So this, this doctrine of inspiration dictates that 
something called formal equivalency should always be used as the translation technique. Now, again, I'm getting a little technical, but formal equivalency just means that you translate the exact words, that you translate exactly what was in this language into this language. And this is set apart from something called dynamic equivalency. Most of the English translations that are available to us are not only translated from a different family of manuscripts, they're also translated with dynamic equivalency. That's why when you pick them up and read them, you say, this doesn't sound like the Bible because it's translated with a different technique. The idea of dynamic equivalency is you try to, you try to communicate the idea of the original text, but make it culturally appropriate. So an example would be if you were in a culture that didn't know anything about sheep because they didn't raise sheep, but they raised a lot of pigs then you might go into passages that speak about Jesus being the Lamb of God, and you might say, well, that's not going to make any sense to them, so let's change it to be that Jesus is the piglet of God. But you could see a big problem with that, couldn't you? You could see that that would lose its meaning and that that wouldn't be accurate. Now, that's a little bit of an extreme example, but honestly, if you've ever picked up the message and read it, it's not far from that. And so that's one example of an extreme dynamic equivalency translation that's available in the English language. This is why most English translations sound wildly different from the King James Version because most of them use dynamic equivalency. But formal equivalency would be that which holds to, okay, if we believe every word is important, that God gave every word, then we want to make sure to translate accurately And in case you're wondering, the King James Version was translated with formal equivalency. Now, notice this. A belief in inspiration demands an embrace of preservation. And here's why. If God cared enough to give us his word miraculously, why would he not also keep it for future generations? If God went to all that trouble to give his word in the beginning... Would it then be his intention for the Bible to be lost, for it to go away, for us to not be sure about exactly where the word of God is? So if we believe in inspiration, then the next step is preservation. And you say, does the Bible speak about preservation or does it promise preservation? Yes, it does. In many places, the Bible speaks about preservation. You could turn to Psalm 12. And you could see Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Obviously, God's word is pure. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. It's not my purpose tonight to defend verse 7 as being directed at the words of the Lord. You should know this is an attacked verse for obvious reasons. And lots of people say that promise in verse 7 is not referring to the words of the Lord. Uh, I I will object to that. And again, I don't have time to defend that this evening. But I believe it's clear enough, even in the English, it's clear enough that this is speaking about the words of the Lord. Now... 
Today, some people believe that God has preserved his word in heaven, but not necessarily on earth. And they say, well, God did preserve his word, and it's in heaven, and he's going to bring it again one day, and we'll know exactly what it is. Or they believe that God's word is preserved in all of the different manuscripts that we have, and so our job is to sort it out and figure out where God's words are, because we don't exactly know for sure where God's words are. They believe that because we no longer have the original, it's nearly impossible for us to know the exact words of God that were given. They constantly talk about the difficulty of scribal errors and the impossibility that we could have the exact words of God after so many generations of copies have been made. And then they scratch their head and wonder why it is that a younger generation doesn't believe the word of God. You've told them that it's not reliable. You've told them that they can't be sure that they have it. They rush to say, that's only in unimportant places. We're very sure in the important places that we have God's word. It's, it's only unimportant, un, insignificant places. It's not that big of a deal. You know, so you could still have confidence in the Bible. But if you're, if you're really evaluating that argument, you say, well, how do you know? How do you know then that those important passages are preserved properly or are translated properly? Of course, these critics also point out the difficulties of translation, and they make sure that we understand how difficult or even impossible it is to accurately communicate words from one language to another. And therefore, they believe we could not have confidence that God has preserved his word in any other language besides the original languages, and probably he has not preserved it either in those original languages. All we could really do is keep looking for more and more manuscripts and hopefully get closer to the actual word of God, which they believe was lost a long time ago. Doesn't that give you confidence then in their preaching when they say, thus saith the Lord? Do you wonder why a lot of young people are growing up saying, how do you know? How do you know that the Bible is so? Because they've listened to these arguments and they've applied them consistently to their life. Now, in contrast to this, we believe that God gave his word and he promised to keep it for future generations because he actually wants men from every generation to know his truth, that which he has revealed. These promises of preservation, I read one to you in Psalm 12, 6, and 7. There's many others. But these promises of preservation, I propose to you, extend to the process of translation. Because otherwise, we would all need to learn foreign languages in order to actually read the Word of God. We would need to learn Hebrew and Greek, or else we couldn't have confidence to read the Word of God and know that it is the Word of God. Except, of course, they don't believe it was preserved in those languages either. So, our belief is, we believe that when God gave his word, he kept his word. Now, let me explain to you why this is important. Why is it important that we believe in preservation? Simply this. Because everything that we believe and practice depends upon, thus saith the Lord. If we don't have confidence that that is what God has said... How are we going to know what to believe? How are we going to know where to put our faith or our confidence? 
We want to believe that the Bible is available to us today and that the Bible we have is completely without error. I want to be able to stand up and say, this is the Word of God. You can have confidence in this book. I don't want you to have confidence in me over this book. I want this book to be the rule of faith and practice. Now, I can, with a clear conscience, stand before you tonight and say, I believe with all my heart that God inspired his word and he preserved his word. And this book that I hold in my hand is the word of God. I, I make no hesitation at that. Okay, so we have inspiration and we have preservation. Those two biblical doctrines help us to decide, okay, now which Bible should we use? We're going to come back and evaluate in just a little bit. The third thing that we want to understand is authority. Authority. And this is going to be a continuation of what I've just been talking about. Because when you take away inspiration and preservation, and you say we can't really be sure that we have God's word today, but we're doing the best we can to narrow it down. Or maybe if you read these five Bibles and put them all together, you'll come up with something that's pretty close to God's actual given word. What are you doing? Well, you're moving the authority subtly away from thus saith the Lord to thus saith the scholar. Now it's going to be, well, what does such and such a scholar say this word should be? Or as you see in a lot of commentaries that you read, the best manuscripts call this section into question. And so these scholars, scholar such and such who has three doctorates, has declared that this is probably not belonging here and most likely is a scribal error. And I say, what? Okay, so this authority. So, all right, now I'm going to put just a little bit of salt into the discussion. You read a commentator who says, my three years of Greek study have led me to conclude that the King James Bible translators mistranslated this word. Okay, do you really want to go there? Do you want to take the qualifications of the men who translated the King James Bible and put it up against your three-year seminary Greek education? Because you got nothing. Nothing. These guys were geniuses when it came to translation and languages. That's not where our confidence is. I'm just pointing out to you that that men are arrogant and they call into question God's word. But what this really is, is subtly pulling the authority away from God's word and putting it on scholars who are better equipped to tell us which readings are more accurate and what they actually mean. A common theme in the battle for the Bible is that the scholars are the only ones who really know what the Bible says. The common man is not smart enough to figure it out. But this is the exact opposite of what God says is his intention for the word of God. We we don't have to go to scholars to figure out what God's word is. Now, we say that the Bible is our rule for faith and practice. At Lehigh Valley Baptist Church, we do not hold to a confession or a denominational interpretation. So sometimes I get asked, which confession do you hold to? None. Oh, come on, you have to hold to one of them. No, we don't. What do you hold to? The Bible. That's a cop-out. 
No, that's not a cop-out. That's what we're supposed to hold to is the Bible. Why is this so hard to, to understand? We're not called to follow a confession of what people say the Bible says. We're called to, call, to follow the Bible. We approach the Bible as an understandable book. I fully believe and am convinced that you can understand the Bible. Your children can understand the Bible. It's absolutely possible for people who are just normal, everyday, average people who've never been to seminary, who have never had a Greek or Hebrew class, you can understand the Bible. It's not that difficult. We use a literal, historical, grammatical approach in interpreting the Word of God. We believe that the King James Bible is accurately translated from the original languages. It is understandable with some study and thought. We'll put that caveat there, with some study and thought. And it can be accessed by everyone. All preaching and teaching should be compared to what the Bible says. And it is not necessary to read the original languages to understand it. Now... If you want to take Greek and you want to take Hebrew because you enjoy languages and you want to see some of the things that are behind the scriptures, fine, that's no problem. But you don't have to read Greek and Hebrew to understand what the Bible says. You have the Bible in the English language right there in front of you and you can have confidence that it's the word of God. All right, so regarding inspiration, we have a view regarding preservation, regarding authority, The fourth thing that I want you to consider is faith. Faith. You say, why faith? Because you must understand that our doctrinal position concerning the word of God does require a measure of faith. I want to very carefully point out to you and readily admit that there are practical difficulties in the area of preservation and translation. Inspiration itself is a miracle of God. Preservation is a miracle of God. Even translation, accurate translation, is going to require some faith that God was involved in that process so that the word of God could be communicated to someone who spoke a different language. Because if you speak a couple of different languages, you know some of the challenges of translating from one language into another language. So we admit that there are some difficulties. These difficulties are not insignificant. It's not easy when it comes to preservation and translation. There is potential for error and confusion. So you say, well, then how can you possibly believe that you have the word of God after all this time? Because I believe the promise of God. Because I believe that when God said he would preserve his word, he meant that he would preserve his word. I I believe that when God gave his word, he intended for people to have it. I believe that we have it today based on the promise of God. So I choose to trust that I actually have the word of God. I choose to believe that God's word was not lost for generations, that it didn't disappear for a long, long time, and then somebody found it in a monastery or a library somewhere, and it's been gone all this time, but now we have it. I don't believe that. I believe that God preserved his word and made it accessible for people to be able to read and know what he had said. I choose to believe that the actual words we read in our Bible are the words that God has for us today. 
even though they're not written in the original languages that the scripture was given in, I still believe that they are the words of God. Now, because of this faith position, we look back across the ages and recognize that there is a Bible which has always existed since it was given by God. That Bible is found translated into many languages. It's also found in many manuscripts of the originals that have been discovered. It was never lost. It was always treasured by Bible believers, and some of them went to the stake for their confidence in the Word of God. That Bible is passed down to us today. And it is the same Bible that we hold today in the English language, the King James Version, or the authorized version as it's also known. It's our desire also that people who read and speak other languages would have an accurate translation of the Bible in their language so that they could regard that as the Word of God and find that to be the authority. I will point out to you that the most broadly understood language in the world is the English language. And the best-selling book of all time is the King James Version of the Bible. It is widely accessible. It can be found in every corner and every country of the world. And many people in other countries speak English as a second language, and even to them, the Bible is accessible. All right, so we've thought about inspiration, preservation, authority, faith. Lastly, I want you to think about unity. Unity. We know that God's design for a New Testament church is that we would walk in unity, that God wants us to be of the same mind, that he wants us to have the same doctrine. And so unity also has a bearing on our discussion. It is absolutely imperative as a church that we have unity concerning this issue. Unfortunately, the prevalence of modern translations has caused a great deal of controversy and disagreement in many places. Ever since these new translations began being introduced in the late 1800s, there are a lot of discussions and disagreement about the Bible. For instance, could you imagine how confusing it would be? Scripture memory time. And we have 10 or 12 or 15 different versions of the Bible being quoted or read at the same time, that's confusion. That's not going to be a unified voice. It causes confusion when someone has a different version and they read from it at their Sunday school table and say, well, this is what my Bible says. That's confusion. It causes confusion when someone says, well, you may like the King James Version, but this is my favorite version of the Bible. You have, a, you have a version of the Bible? You have your own version? I have my version? There is a, different, a difference. Things that are different are not the same. Amen. This causes disunity. Especially because we use an expository approach in preaching the Bible, it's really helpful for you to have the same Bible that is being used in the exposition of the Scripture so that you can see it for yourself. Now, because of this need for unity, I do not recommend any other version of the Bible in the English language besides the King James Version. 
I recommend that if you are a member of our church, or even if you are a longtime visitor, you are going to get the most benefit from the ministry of this church by using the King James Version. I do recognize in saying that, that you may need to study and think more deeply in order to understand what the scripture is saying. I'll address that in a moment. I do not think that you need to have a lexicon or a working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew to truly understand the scriptures. I do believe that learning English grammar and language rules will be very helpful. An English dictionary may also be a help because, of course, there are some words that are old in the King James Bible that are used differently today, and they can cause us some confusion. There is a small number of those words And until you learn them, you may find that an English dictionary could be of great help. Usually, however, the context will define the word that you're puzzling over, and it will help you to understand the meaning. So let me challenge you with something. Try to grapple with the the verse before running quickly to a commentary or some other place to find out what it means you'll find that this process can be quite rewarding and you might be surprised at what you discover you can figure out just by reading the verses around the verse that is puzzling you. Of course, commentaries may be a help. Asking someone who has more knowledge of the Bible than you do may be a help. But many times, I think that we're just too quick. And maybe this is because we live in the quick access. You know, we we find information by looking it up on Google and in seconds, we find the answer that we're looking for, or at least, you know, 15 answers that we could choose from. And so we're used to that kind of access, and we get frustrated if it takes longer than a minute for us to figure out what something means. All right, so when we think about the King James Version, unity will help us to say, you know, I want to be in agreement with where everyone else is at in the church family. All right, so inspiration, preservation, authority, faith, and unity. If you take these five principles and you consider them carefully, I believe you'll see that the trail or the focus of these five principles is going to bring you to the King James Version. Because all of the other versions that are available, at least in the English language, are based on a critical text approach to the Scriptures. It is an approach that says... The Bible was not really inspired, or if it was, we've lost it long ago. So we've got to do our best to reclaim it, and the only way to really know is to have a really good scholar in your back pocket that you can consult to tell you the things that you couldn't possibly understand. And you probably don't have any confidence that you have the Word of God, but at least you could have confidence that we, the scholars, have your best interest at heart, and don't worry because you don't really need to be in unity with anyone except the universal church. All right, so I said it a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But the truth is, if you take those five principles, I think you're going to come to the conclusion that the King James Version is the Bible that God has for us today. Now, some people say, well, what do we do with the difficulty of reading the King James Bible? Because let's be honest, some people have difficulty reading the King James Version, especially if they've not grown up reading it, it's unfamiliar to them, they open the pages of Scripture, and they, they struggle through it. Maybe some of you can identify with this when you first got saved. You say, how do you, how do you help a person like that? 
Well, I suggest to you that handing them a different version of the Bible is not necessarily the best answer. I would encourage you to help them learn how to study and understand the Bible for themselves. Help them to understand that, okay, there there are some things that are different in the King James Version as far as the way the sentence structures are. There are some differences in the pronouns that are used, but could I just remind you that those pronouns are actually super important? They communicate meaning that is not available with the modern English pronouns that we use. They, they, they provide a nuance of meaning that is available in the Greek language in particular that is not necessarily available in modern English. That's a subject for another time. Dr. Waite, who's down outside of Philadelphia, and he's the, he's the, the head of the, um, the Bible for today, and he pastors down there. He's quite elderly now. Uh, but they're, they're the folks who have the defined King James Bible that they've produced, and they've defined some of the words that are more difficult for people to understand. So here's a quote from him in his book, Defending the King James Bible. He is, a, he is a, an incredible scholar of both Greek and Hebrew, and he is also an ardent defender of the King James Bible. Some people say they like a particular version because they say it's more readable. Now, Readability is one thing, but does the readability conform to what's in the original Greek and Hebrew language? You could have a lot of readability, but if it doesn't match up with what God has said, it's of no profit. In the King James Bible, the words match what God has said. You may say it's difficult to read, but study it out. It's hard in the Hebrew and Greek and perhaps even in the English in the King James Bible. But to change it around just to make it simple or interpreting it instead of translating it is wrong. You've got lots of interpretation, but we don't want that in a translation. We want exactly what God said in the Hebrew or Greek brought over into English. And this is a problem that can sneak into translation is when the translators decide to interpret the passage for the reader. It's their job to translate the scriptures and then leave the interpretation up to the reader. And so tonight, many people are longing for an update to the King James Version to make it more understandable. But perhaps in this climate of rampant apostasy and departure from the faith, it's best to be content with the Bible that God has already given to us. Instead of looking for a different Bible, maybe we should just apply ourselves and study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Apply yourself with diligence and study to be a workman for the Lord. I have a pastor friend, Pastor Gary Webb, and he's down in, uh, in North Carolina, just outside Chapel Hill. And I was with him a couple of years ago, and He was sharing with me his personal journey. Pastor Webb was saved later in life, and he went to a Christian university where he was schooled in critical text theory and was introduced to all of the different versions of the Bible. He became a pastor, and he was pastoring in that area, and someone began to challenge him about this issue of the Bible. Now, bear in mind that he had advanced degrees in Greek and Hebrew and had studied all of these issues, but he humbly began to study this issue out 
And the more that he studied it, the more convinced he became that the King James Version is God's word in the English language. He completely changed his position and led his church to follow in that position. And he has become an ardent defender of the King James Version himself. It's the, it's the Bible that he preaches from and studies and memorizes and encourages other people to study. And he has such a unique perspective on it because he didn't start out like I did hearing the King James Version and then just went into that. But he actually started out in a different place altogether and realized that he needed to go this direction. So tonight, I I propose to you, I hope that you'll consider it. You say, it's hard for me, Pastor, to understand the English of the King James Version. I'd love to help you with that. If you come and speak with me, I'll try to give you some tools, which I think will be a help. I think what you'll find is that you might become a better reader. You might learn to comprehend the English language better than you've ever comprehended it. My dad has this testimony. Some of the guys that he works with there in Africa, you know, The way they study is they take the Bible and open it up and they read the scriptures and they ask questions and answer those questions. He said he's got men who didn't even know how to read when they started. They've learned to read, reading the King James Bible. That would be their second language, not their primary language, but they read the King James Bible and they can understand what they're reading. So I think there's hope for you. I think any of us, I think any of us could get to the place where the English Bible becomes comfortable to us And we can hear from God through his word. This Bible, the King James Bible, has been blessed by God. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have been saved through the preaching of this Bible. Some of the greatest revivals that have taken place in our history have taken place through the preaching of this Bible. Missionaries have been sent. Churches have been planted. This is God's book. And I have no shame in saying to you, This is the authority. This is the final rule of faith and practice. This is what we hold to at Lehigh Valley Baptist Church. And I hope that you could be of the same mind with us in choosing the Bible that you will use, read, study from, and bring with you to the house of God. 